Okay, Mark 8, um, starting in verse 1. It says, In those days, the multitude being very great and having nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the multitude because they have now continued with me three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their houses, they will faint on the way, for some of them have come from afar. Then his disciples answered him, How can one satisfy these people with bread here in the wilderness? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven. So he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground. He took the seven loaves and gave thanks, broke them, and gave them to his disciples to set before them. And they set them before the multitude. They also had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said to set them also before them. So they ate and were filled, and they took up seven large baskets of leftover fragments. Now those who had eaten were about 4,000, and he sent them away. Immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and came to the region of Dalmanutha. So Jesus is once again surrounded by the multitude that accompanied the deaf and dumb man that he healed at the end of chapter 7. Once again, they're in the wilderness without food. They're in the area of Decapolis. This is, a, this is the region where he had cast the legion out of the most fierce demoniac that we read about in the scriptures. And he sent him to tell those in his country about all the great things that God had done for him. It's recorded for us back in Mark chapter 5, verse 19, where he says uh, he wants to go with Jesus. And Jesus doesn't permit him. He says, go home to your friends. Tell them what great things the Lord has done for you. And how he has had compassion on you. We see the compassion of the Lord ministering to this man. And so he began to proclaim in Decapolis all that Jesus had done for him. And all marveled. So we make the note. He's, he now, how he has compassion on this man. How he has compassion on, on us. And we'll see this in our passage here. We see in this passage also some of the fruit of this man's testimony. They come to listen to Jesus rather than to chase him away. The soil has been prepared to receive the seed. So Jesus marshals the disciples for a second lesson in his limited or limitless ability to provide for those who are in need. They did not get it the first time. Um, they don't get it this time, as we'll see. Why again? Why the repetition of the same miracle? There are some critical scholars who would reduce this to one incident subsequently embellished by legend or by the apostles' excesses. But these are two distinct incidents. They're different occasions, different numbers in the multitude, and later Jesus speaks of both in emphasizing the lesson that should have been perceived by his own. And we should take Jesus' word over any scholar or anyone else. William MacDonald says there's a danger in treating incidents like the feeding of the 4,000 as insignificant repetition. We should approach Bible study with the conviction that every word of Scripture is filled with spiritual truth, even if we can't see it at our present state of understanding. Both of these miraculous incidents are reported by Mark and Matthew. Only the 5,000 is reported by Luke and John. Guzik says, Some scholars argue this specific miracle never happened. 
They claim that this was merely a retelling of the feeding of the 5,000. Their main argument is, how could the disciples forget Jesus' previous work so quickly? Yet, even mature Christians, having experienced God's power and provision, sometimes go on to act in unbelief. This wasn't so surprising after all. And I can testify to this. How easy it is to turn from the right path and become embroiled in hypocrisy. One of the peculiarities of hypocrisy is that those who are taken captive by it are blind to their own condition. There's a blindness of pride in it. It is a mercy of the Lord that he confronts this condition and calls it out. We find him calling out this hypocrisy of the Pharisees often. Of course, this is also not the only time that God's people are challenged in regard to food and spiritual perception. If we read back in Psalm 78, verse 18 through 20, he's recounting the time of the Israelites in the wilderness. And he says in verse 18, they tested God in their hearts by asking for the food of their fancy. You know, they've been eating this manna for a while, but they wanted something else. And yes, they spoke against God. They said, can God prepare a table in the wilderness? Behold, he struck the rock so that the waters gushed out and the streams overflowed. Can he give bread also? And that's they're speaking of quail, of course. Can he provide meat for his people? So they've had this miracle food every day for some time, but, but they ask, can God set a table in the wilderness? How easily human hearts can become calloused. Experiencing the miraculous does not mean that our hearts will be forever tender toward the Lord. Uh, Jeremiah 17.9, you know this, but bears repeating. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? That's the human heart. Trust not in your own heart. Trust only in the Lord and what He has said, for it is absolutely reliable. Your heart may lie to you. In fact, it will lie to you. So correct it with what God has said. We may as well accept right now that our heart is a liar to us. Maybe not always, but significantly. So let's pursue the heart of God who always tells us the truth. Let's follow His heart, not our own. Well, Jesus speaks here and He says, I have compassion on this multitude. How this is always true. But there is only, this is the only time Jesus Himself expresses it and says, I have compassion. The Scriptures often emphasize the compassion of God and the compassion of Jesus. But here Jesus speaks it. It's likely that this crowd includes a lot of Gentiles the first feeding, the 5,000, was likely all or nearly all Jews. But this could include a lot or could even be mostly Gentiles because it's the area of Decapolis where he is uh, on the sea. And many Greeks and Romans settled in this area. When Jesus fed the 5,000, the incident began with the crowd pursuing him when he sought to get away with his disciples for a time of rest. And when he saw the crowd that was before him, however, we are told that in compassion upon them, he taught them the truth of God. He did this because he saw them as sheep without a shepherd, the lost sheep of the house of Israel, whom he came to seek and to save. In this incident, Jesus is ministering in a Gentile area. And Jesus has just performed 
recently a miracle for the Syrophoenician Gentile woman in casting that uh, demon out of her daughter. Erdman comments, the first miracle in this period intimated that crumbs of bread might fall from the table for the needy Gentiles. Here, there may be an intimation that Jesus, rejected by his own people, is to give his life for the world and is to be the living bread for all nations. Our God is full of compassion for mankind, Jew and Gentile, and and the scriptures are simply flooded with this notion, this idea. And uh, we'll look at a few scriptures that, that recount this. In Psalm 78 again, later on in that psalm, in verses 37-39, it's speaking of these people again. It says, Their heart was not steadfast with him, nor were they faithful in his covenant. But he, being full of compassion, forgave their iniquity and did not destroy them. Yes, many a time he turned his anger away. And did not stir up all his wrath, for he remembered that they were but flesh, a breath that passes away and does not come again. In Psalm 86 and verse 15, it tells us, But you, O Lord, are a God full of compassion and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in mercy and truth. He's not just a compassionate God, but he's full of compassion. Psalm 145, verses 8 and 9 says, The Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger, and great in mercy. The Lord is good to all, and His tender mercies are over all His works. We see compassion and tender mercies of our God. In Psalm 51, verse 1, where David writes this psalm after Nathan confronts him, with his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah. And David repents. And he begins in verse 1 and says, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Calling upon the compassion of the Lord, his loving kindness, and again, his tender mercies. We find these three expressions often in speaking of our God. In Psalm 63, verses 3 and 4, the psalmist says, Because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise you. Thus I will bless you while I live. I will lift up my hands in your name. This loving kindness of the Lord, better than life. Isaiah 49, verses 14 through 16. He says, But Zion said, Jerusalem said, The Lord's forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. And the Lord comments, Can a woman forget her nursing child and not have compassion on the son of her womb? Surely they may forget, yet I will not forget you. See, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. He won't fail to have compassion on his people. Psalm 103, verses 1 through 4. This is that psalm about blessing the Lord. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits. And here are some of them. Who forgives all your iniquities. Who heals all your diseases. Who redeems your life from destruction. Who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies. That's the crown upon your head. 
His loving kindness, His tender mercies. Loving kindness, the word that's translated loving kindness in our, our scriptures is often translated mercy. And sometimes just kindly, kindness. Tender mercies is, is a word that speaks of the inner workings of a person. It's, it's used referencing the womb. It's used, you know, some, uh, I think the King James word used to speak of bowels of compassion. That's what this word is, is tender mercies. A person is moved deeply inside. And if you've felt compassion towards someone when you've seen that what they're going through, you know that there's a physical component to this emotion. That feeling in the pit of your stomach as you consider their suffering. This attribute of God has that connotation. He's moved. Jesus is moved within himself. Compassion is the emotional component of love. And all these things, compassion, loving kindness, tender mercies, they're all components of His grace. And He offers grace to all. Forgiveness, mercy, hope, life. God acts in love. He acts in love because He has compassion on us in our needy state. Even in the midst of our rebellion. Over in Romans chapter 5, verses 6-8, through again, something you're very familiar with, no doubt says, when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He demonstrates his love. He acts in his love because of his love and compassion toward us, even while we were still sinners. Christ died upon the cross. God shows us that He loves His enemies and He commands us to love our enemies. So, we might ask, who is God? What's my concept of God? Is your God the God of compassion, mercy, long-suffering, tender mercies, and loving kindness? You know, there are many who seek to serve God who only see Him as a God of wrath. Now, some will experience his wrath, but that's not his desire. He longs to have compassion and mercy upon people if they will but turn to him for mercy and forgiveness of sins. Our, our view of God, who is God, according to the scriptures, is very important as we relate to God. Over in Luke chapter 19, this is, is also found in Matthew, but the language is a little different. It's the parable of the Manaz. Uh, where the person gives ten to one and five to another and one to one. And uh, I don't know, I know that's the talents. I don't know the numbers with the manas necessarily, but it's, it's similar to the parable of the talents. It was something Jesus was giving on different occasions, and so he told it a little bit differently. But uh, the master comes back, and you know, two of them have gained with what they've done and, and then uh, he comes to this one who got the one mana and he comes and says Master here's your mana which I have kept put away in a handkerchief I just pull it up here and it's it's not so much that the Lord is going to be upset with him because he kept it in a handkerchief it's why he kept it in a handkerchief he says for I feared you because you are an austere man 
You collect what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. So his view of the master is, this guy's harsh. He's cruel. So I'm going to keep this because I don't want to, you know, have his displeasure. If I lose it, then, you know, what's going to happen? And the master says to him, out of your own mouth, I will judge you, you wicked servant. You knew that I was an austere man collecting what I did not deposit, reaping what I did not sow. So uh, the, the master says, I'm going to judge you by your own words, your own idea of who I am. The man says, I knew you were a hard man. That's austere, harsh, rough, rigid, severe. And the master says, I'll judge you from your own words. This man did not know the master at all. He didn't know God at all, if we relate it to God. Lamentations chapter 3, verses 22 through 25 uh, Jeremiah writing says, Through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed because His compassions fail not. That's good to know. Not only is He full of compassion, but His compassion, his compassions do not fail. He continues being compassionate. Uh, he says, They are new every morning. These mercies of the Lord. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I hope in Him. And he's writes, the Lord is good to those who wait for Him, to the soul who seeks Him. Who do we think God to be? A loving, compassionate Father or an arresting policeman? This is spoken of uh, in Genesis when Adam falls and God comes seeking him in the garden and calls out, Adam, where are you? Uh, Of course, he knew where he was. And someone has related his is that the cry of an arresting officer? Or is that the cry of a heartbroken father? Which is it? He offers life, not condemnation. His compassion relates to the people's physical infirmities here, that they're hungry after having taught these people for three days. You know, the feeding of the 5,000, he was with them for a day and he taught them. He's been teaching these people for three days. And they must be hungry for spiritual food. For the spiritual food to be there for three days, not having anything to eat. They're fasting during this time because they would rather hear what Jesus has to say than to go somewhere and try to find food. So Jesus won't send them away without first meeting their need lest they not come to their homes And his disciples say, where are we going to get enough bread here in the wilderness? Does that sound familiar? It's like deja vu all over again. Someone has described this as food in the wilderness, course 102. (laughs) So he asked them, how many loaves do you have? And they say seven. Uh, How many did they have at the feeding of the 5,000? Five. Seven loaves will go much further than five loaves. Not much of a miracle. I've got a couple extra loaves there. More loaves, fewer people, more leftovers. That's reasonable. But God is omni-reasonable. We think of him being omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent. He's omni-reasonable, 
omnirational, super reasonable. It may not seem so to us because our reasoning is limited and finite. Someday we will perceive greater and understand that, yes, Lord, this does make sense. Although I had a hard time perceiving it at the time. Some things we're confused by, they're going to make perfect sense to us. We see the Lord's hand and the Lord's motivation. We have understanding that we're short of currently. So he takes and he breaks the loaves as he did before. Gives thanks, breaks them, distributes them. Uh, Guzik again says Jesus did what he only could do, the creative miracle. But Jesus left to the disciples to do what they could do, the distribution of the bread. There's a an old saying, and it became part of a song that uh, Bob Bennett did. He says, uh, I'm a beggar, but I know where there's bread. You know, you don't have to have super knowledge or be a super Christian to be able to give to somebody. You're just telling them where you got something, you know. So he provides the bread, the spiritual bread. We get to distribute it. He's the producer of all good things. We're privileged to be distributors. You know, you've been commissioned or gifted with a divine distributorship. Some of you may have had jobs where you you had a distributorship or even an ownership of a distributorship. He's given us that. Each one of us has a divine distributorship. He provides, you deliver, and fruit grows. So he divides the fish, passes it out again, and once again, everyone is satiated. You know, these two meals, the 5,000 and the 4,000, which are both numbers that include only the men, these two meals are probably the best meals these people have ever had. It has to be. Jesus taking the bread and reproducing it into fish, you know. It's like, hey, where's the truck stand where you got this stuff, you know. I guess they had the wagon stands back then. And then they take up seven large baskets of the leftovers. This is a different word for basket. In the feeding of the 5,000, the word indicates a hand basket. These were typical Jewish baskets. Uh, these seven large baskets, this is, these are specifically Gentile baskets. So they're like big hampers. Um, you know, they might use them for transporting goods. Something like that. We get a picture of it in Acts chapter 9, verses 23 through 25, where Paul has been converted. He's preaching in Damascus that Jesus is the Christ, and people are getting upset with him. And it says in verse 23, After many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. And then the disciples took him by night and let him down through the wall in a large basket. That's the same word that we're reading about here, that seven large baskets were taken up. So it's a lot of bread left over because he started with more, you know, and there are fewer people. It's reasonable. So immediately he gets into a boat and goes to the region of Dalmanutha, which is across on the uh, western side um, Matthew identifies it the area of Magala. Uh, sometimes it's uh, Magdala, like Mary Magdalene. Uh, but it's this area on the upper west side of the uh, sea. 
And so we have this miraculous, miraculous feeding of the thousands of people for the second time. Why twice? I think there are at least a couple of reasons, probably a lot more. First reason is Jesus has compassion on the needs of men, whether it's for spiritual or physical needs. And he won't hold back that compassion just because, hey, I did this a month ago. You know, I'm not going to repeat myself. God does repeat himself quite often. I don't know if you've noticed that as you've read through the scriptures, but and it's for our benefit. He doesn't need to be reminded. We can remind him of what he said to us. That's beneficial. Uh, but he reminds us often and repeats himself often, a lot of times in different words, but saying basically the same thing. And so uh, he does that for our benefit because we need it. <laughs> we forget. So he has compassion on the needs of men. He's moved with compassion for the plight of the multitude. And then secondly, he does it for the sake of his disciples. They did not learn the lesson he was intending for them to learn. They do not say, you know, when he says, uh, you know, I'm not, we need to feed these people. I'm not going to send them away. They don't say, okay, Lord, we've got a few loaves and some small fish. Go for it. Guzik again says we can imagine Jesus hoping one of the disciples might say, Jesus, you did this before. You can do the same kind of work again. Jesus hoped they would regard his past faithfulness as a promise to meet their present need. But, of course, they don't. Instead, they are once again bewildered as though they have forgotten the previous miracle. Later, these two miracles are still not having the impact upon them that Jesus desires. And we'll see this. Not today, but as we get into the further parts of chapter 8. And Jesus perceives that their hearts are hardened rather than enlightened by the miraculous. Who would think? We may also have repeated lessons from the Lord because we do not have understanding of what he wants us to learn or because we do not obey what he is telling us. Okay, Vernon McGee said, it looks as though the disciples had forgotten about his feeding of the 5,000. He says, I'm of the opinion that many of us have the same kind of experience. God does some very gracious and good thing for us, and we forget it by the next time. When a new emergency arises, we find ourselves neophytes. That is, it is all brand new to us again. So he repeats lessons for us for the same reason he did so with the apostles. He desires the best for us. And he's patient and long-suffering toward us to bring us to a place of understanding. He teaches us. There is no harshness in his nature toward those who are his own. The more we learn to trust and obey, walk by faith, not by sight, the better our spiritual life will be. Jesus does not, or Jesus does eventually get through to their hardened hearts, bringing an openness to the things of the Spirit, but it can take some time, some work of the Lord, even for us to recognize that our hearts are resisting the things of God to some extent, great or small. When we do recognize it, then we must decide if we will surrender to Him or continue in the same path. Consequences do follow in the way in which we go, either blessing or uh, discipline. He's faithful to discipline us if needed because he is a God full of compassion. He's doing it for our benefit, not for his own. 
So in verse 11 then, it says, The Pharisees came out and began to dispute with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven, testing him. So they, they're there at this feeding or immediately after. It says, He sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Assuredly, I say to you, no, shi- no sign shall be given to this generation. And he left them and getting into the boat again, departed to the other side. So, he's immediately confronted by the Pharisees again. Just when you think it's safe to go back to Israeli territory, sharks, here they come. They're seeking a sign from heaven. How ludicrous this dispute with Jesus. A sign from heaven. He is the sign from heaven. John 3.13 says, No one's ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man who is in heaven. John 6.31-35, this is the feeding of the 5,000. Afterward, these uh, people disputing with him say, Our fathers, in verse 31, Our fathers ate the manna in the desert as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. This is their suggestion. Keep giving us more food. And Jesus says to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And then they said to Him, Lord, give us this bread always. That's a good request, but they don't know what they're asking. They're they're still asking the other thing. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. 1 Corinthians 15.47 says, The first man, Adam, was of the earth made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. He's the sign from heaven. And they're, they're blind to it. In addition, he's been casting out demons, doing miraculous healings, teaching the truth of Scripture, and shepherding the sheep that have been neglected by the religious leaders. He has been exhibiting all the signs given in prophecy of the one who would come. And they are blind to it. It's difficult to conceive of what signs they are seeking. Would it be water turned to blood? Plagues upon the Roman authorities? But they want a sign from heaven. Perhaps they think all the things he's been doing are from the earth. He's just, you know, he's just multiplying bread and fish. Where's the stuff from heaven? Or maybe with just things on the earth he's been doing. Do they want fire called down from heaven? Food from heaven, not from the earth? Make the sun stand still? They were certainly looking for a national political deliverer. One who would throw off the yoke of Roman rule and establish the promised kingdom. One who would deliver Israel and put them on top. They would be the head instead of the tail. But he did not seem to be any of these things. We've been going through Isaiah on Thursday nights and we've been in chapter 53 recently. These first four verses of Isaiah 53 say, Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. He's despised 
and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, and he's acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. This is the testimony of the first century Jew for the most part. They did not esteem him. He was rejected. We don't want to make the same mistake. He's the only deliverer and the only source of life. You know, men need personal deliverance before they can experience societal or political deliverance. This only works one way around. It doesn't come the other way around. We recall also Jesus pointing to the Messianic prophecies to identify who he was, who he is. Uh, in Luke chapter 4, 16 through 21, when he comes to Nazareth, he goes into his synagogue, as is his custom, and they give him the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, and he's going to teach. And he, in verse 18, it says he finds this place in the scroll of Isaiah where it says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. Everybody's looking at him, and he says to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. This is what's happening today, folks, here in your synagogue in Nazareth. And, you know, they don't accept it, but he's pointing to those prophecies of the Messiah's coming. In Luke chapter 7, verses 19 through 23, John in prison hears about what's going on with Jesus, but he's having doubts. He had proclaimed, here he is, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then, you know, he's in prison and he's wondering, hmm, why am I sitting in prison? I might have been part of it. So in verse 19 of Luke 7, John calls two of his disciples. He sends them to Jesus and they ask him, Are you the coming one or do we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you saying, Are you the coming one or do we look for another? They got the message. Right. And that very hour, he cured many infirmities, afflictions, and evil spirits. And to many blind, he gave sight. And John answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things you've seen and heard. That the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them. These are signs of the kingdom age. And coming as the Messiah, he's performing all these signs. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Don't be offended, John. I'm the guy. Here's, what, here's the proof. He didn't just tell him, oh, go back and tell John I'm the, I'm the right one, you know. Uh, he demonstrates that he is the guy, the Lord from heaven. And then in Luke chapter 24, these two guys on the road to Emmaus, and Jesus comes up to them after the resurrection, and he's walking with them and talking with them. And you know, why are you guys so bummed? You know, and they said, "Oh, we thought Jesus of Nazareth was the guy." But he's been killed, and there were some women went to the tomb, but it, and it was empty. But they didn't see him or anything. And, and he says to them in verse twenty-five, "O foolish ones, 
slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And was it, isn't this what Jesus began telling them after Peter's confession? He told them over and over and over again, you know, we're going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be betrayed into the hands of sinners. I'm going to be crucified, buried, and the third day I'm going to rise again. You know, kind of like the feeding of the five and the four. They didn't get it right away. I'm not criticizing them. I, I probably would have been more dumbfounded than any of them. But beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Amazing. So they were slow to believe. He said, you're slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. They believed some, but they didn't believe all. Thus they came to erroneous conclusions about him. It's not enough to believe some things about Jesus. I believe he was a good teacher, but not God. That's not enough. I believe he was a prophet, but I don't believe he was resurrected from the dead. Too bad. Not enough. Many people talk about Jesus, but they don't believe what's written about him. They have their own Jesus, their own made-up person. We must believe all that has been spoken about him if we're going to come to a real understanding, a correct understanding of who he is. Well, we have much more evidence today than even they had in the first century. They had Jesus present, which we do not have, but we have the words of prophecy made more sure by seeing more of it fulfilled than any other generation. For us to doubt his word is criminal. And sometimes I must say, lock me up. I have committed high treason because there are those times where I don't believe all that the prophets have written. I experience doubts and struggle. So Jesus responds to them, sighing deeply, that inner disturbance that's going on now, likely disturbed by the obtuseness of their demand. He says, no sign will be given to this generation. Bruce says, the sigh, physical, its cause, spiritual. A sense of irreconcilable enmity, invincible unbelief, and coming doom. Guzik once again says, Jesus refused because his miracles are not done with the intention of convincing hardened unbelievers. Instead, Jesus did miracles to show the power of God in the context of mercy. Those who believe that if people see enough signs, they will come to faith, presume to know more than Jesus did. He condemned the generation who sought a sign. The signs were there for all to see who were willing to see. But no special sign would be given. Now, on an earlier occasion, Jesus points to one sign that would still be yet future for this generation uh, to whom he's speaking at the time he's speaking it. And that's in Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 through 40. It says, Some of the scribes and Pharisees answered, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. The same thing they're requesting here, but this is earlier in his ministry. And he answers and says to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. And no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The sign of Jonah was the sign that he offered to them. He says, this is the only sign that's going to be shown to you. 
He's already told him this previously, so he asks now, why does this generation keep seeking a sign? His death, burial, and resurrection so clearly prophesied in the Old Testament Scriptures. And this same time frame as we have here in Mark, Matthew records his answer like this in Matthew 16, verses 1 through 4. This is after the feeding of the 4,000. These Pharisees and Sadducees come, testing him, asked that he would show them a sign from heaven. And he answered and said to them, When it's evening, you say, it'll be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be foul weather today, for the sky is red and threatening. What is that saying? Red sky at night, sailors delight. Red sky in the morning, sailors take a warning. A similar thing here. He says, hypocrites, you know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign shall be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And he left them and departed. You know, we're, we're in this same generation. The signs of the times. So, so much of the church is ignoring the signs of the times and even saying prophecy is not important. You don't need to pay attention to it or give it any heed. You know, or it's none of your business. Some of them will say. Uh, it's all of our business. We've got to watch and be ready. And we see the signs taking place. So he's saying, don't you know the time? It's the time of the signs. Messiah is coming. Messiah is here. And today is the time of the signs because Jesus is coming again. They should have known Messiah was due from Daniel's prophecy of the 70 weeks determined by God upon Israel in chapter 9. 69 sevens, periods of Sabbath years or 483 years from the decree to rebuild Jerusalem, Messiah would show up. And this is the time right now in the Gospels. It comes down to the day when he rides into Jerusalem on the foal of a colt. Israel has always been the timepiece for God's fulfillment of his plans. Andy Woods put it like this, Israel is the hour hand, Jerusalem is the minute hand, and the Temple Mount is the second hand. And uh, he's not the only one who said that. I don't know if it originated with him or with somebody else. You know, the hour hand has stopped for nearly 2,000 years. A different clock was started, the times of the Gentiles and the church age. But the hour hand started again in 1948. There's some overlap taking place. The minute hand came back into play in 1967. But in some ways it was put on hold. Jerusalem, 1967 war, when they took West Jerusalem. Then they immediately turned the... I'm sorry, that that should have been the... um, I I did say minute hand. They immediately turned the second hand over to the Islamists and the Temple Mount. They just gave that back to him. So, it wasn't time yet. But the day is going to come. That second hand, the Temple Mount, is trembling in anticipation of the coming birth of the Kingdom Age. Uh, Just recently, uh, Israel began allowing Jewish people to pray on the Temple Mount. Hasn't happened for all of their history. They were not allowed to pray up there. If you got got caught praying, they'd kick you off. Christians go up there, they're not allowed to pray. Christians can go up there. 
they can go, yeah, and Jews can go up there, at least, you know, most of the time when it's allowed. Uh, but they, they weren't allowed to pray. And, and even if you're seeing, kind of reading scripture or something, that's, you know, you're on the verge of praying, they've got to kick you off. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Muslims will kick you off. But, I mean, technically Israel's still in control, but they allow them to, to uh, officiate the Temple Mount. But just recently, they're allowed to go out and pray. And then if this happened, you know, it went for a couple of weeks where Jewish men were being allowed to, and maybe women were being allowed to pray up on the Temple Mount. And then when news media became, you know, more aware of it, then Israel had to back down and say, oh, well, you know, I'm not going to do that right now or anymore. So I uh, haven't heard anything about it in a, in a week or so. But the Lord's got His time, and it's going to happen. You know, Israel's back; they're a nation again. Jerusalem is back. The Temple Mount is the last thing standing for the time of the Gentiles to be taken away. You know, over the past decades, they've been preparing for the building of the third temple. We know this temple has to take place. It has to be there in order for the last day's prophecies to be fulfilled. In order for the Antichrist, who will come, to enter into that temple and desecrate the holy place, as Jesus said, uh, that Daniel, the prophet, spoke of. Or for that to happen, there has to be a third temple on that mount. That's going to take place being allowed to be built through the treaty that will be formed between this coming one, Antichrist, who many people will think is the deliverer of the world. Um, and then this temple can be rebuilt. And it won't take long. They're ready. But, you know, every year, what Solomon, what's his full name? Gershon Solomon. He's the member of the Temple Mount Faithful. Every year they drag a cornerstone up there. They're going to lay the cornerstone for the temple and every year they get sent back down. Yeah. That's been going on for decades. But they have all the uh, temple implements have been reproduced and made. I think the last one I read about was the lampstand that's been made. This big golden lampstand that would sit in the holy place. Oh, do they have a red heifer now? It's in the U.S. somewhere. They actually cross-reference. That's, uh, that's the last thing that's been holding them up because you have to have the red heifer and the ashes. Sacrifice that you burn it, you get the ashes. And you use that for cleansing uh, the items that are used in the temple. So they have to have the red heifer and they're really picky. I mean, <laughs> I would have had a red heifer a long time ago uh, because they'll examine it and if it has, say, one white hair, Rejected. I plucked the hair out. You know. <laughs> so they want a red, red heifer, and and the, you know the Old Testament just says a red heifer. It doesn't say it can't have any other color or anything. So anyway, they're waiting, and you know they, I've seen where they had candidates, but I didn't know if they. And they're kind of watching and waiting because it has to reach a certain age, so it has to stay red, you know, the whole time. So anyway. Lord's coming back, and uh, his time clock 
Israel is still ticking, ticking off the seconds and the days. And we're supposed to look up when we see these things happening because our redemption draws near. You know, could be any any time when the Lord returns for His church. Yeah, Greg's looking up. <laughs> so we're to be watch, watching, praying, ready for the coming of the Lord. Because um, it could, you know, there's, there aren't any signs preceding the rapture of the church. The signs precede the second coming. We're seeing signs for the second coming. And the rapture has to precede that. 